This is an RNZ podcast. This past week, pictures of the severe winter storm that's been hammering Texas have featured in the news a lot. The ones of snow blanketing the landscape outdoors were striking enough, but the ones of ice inside people's houses, because the state's electricity system has failed, were even more startling. And with all that going on, cell phone photos of Republican Senator Ted Cruz taking off for sunny Mexico last weekend for a family break infuriated his constituents. Forced to fly home again after he'd been busted the next day, he told reporters he never really planned to be away for a long time or a good time in the sun. Um, I was trying to be a dad, and, and all of us have made decisions. When you've got two girls who've been cold for two, two days and haven't had heater power, and they're saying, hey, look, we don't have school, why don't we go, let's get out of here. I, I think there are a lot of parents that'd be like, all right, let me, if I can do this, great. However, Ted Cruz's cover story fell apart almost as soon as he'd uttered it because someone leaked private text messages that his wife had sent to neighbours and friends to the New York Times. Now, these messages made it clear the trip had been planned a while earlier to escape the cold and the hassle in Texas. Was it really in the public interest for these text messages to be revealed? Well, you'd think so, as people were officially advised not to cross the border because of COVID, and Senator Cruz himself had attacked rival politicians for making trips away during the current crisis. And last week on local radio, he told people this about the coming storm. We could see up to 100 people uh, lose their lives this week in Texas, so don't risk it. Keep keep your, your family safe and just stay home and hug your kids. With that in mind, New York Magazine writer Olivia Nutzi called the leaker an American hero. But other people felt squeamish about private messages from a spouse being used by the media in this way. And someone else in the US knows what that feels like. We can confirm that Archie's going to be a big brother. The Duke and Duchess are overjoyed. The baby will be eighth in line to the throne. The news comes 37 years to the day since Kensington Palace announced Princess Diana was pregnant with Harry. That's a fun fact for you there. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Last Monday, news broke that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are expecting their second child. Meghan and Harry are really former royals now, having quit the kingdom for the US last year to get away from the press, among other things. But last week, the Sussexes, and Meghan Markle in particular, had a big win over the press for overstepping the mark on their privacy. She sued Associated Newspapers, the owner of the Daily Mail, for a scoop which was headlined like this. Revealed, the letter showing the true tragedy of Meghan's rift with a father she says has broken her heart into a million pieces. British Judge Lord Justice Mark Warby ruled that the publication of a letter to her dad was manifestly excessive and hence unlawful, and no trial was necessary to establish that. Meghan Markle said, We have all won, and we now know that you cannot take somebody's privacy and exploit it. And when she says we... Does she mean us? Our media aren't really in the habit of printing people's private communications, but former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said this ruling was also a wake-up call as valid for New Zealand journalists as their British counterparts. He said that all this was about the competing principles of a public figure's right to privacy versus freedom of expression and the public's right to know. And... There may be instances where publication is justified in the public interest, but this judgment sets a high bar, and rightly so. But media freedom advocates aren't so sure, and in the UK, one veteran media lawyer told Lord Justice Warby, you are putting manacles on the media. Mark Stevens said that any letter that is leaked to a journalist cannot now be published under the terms of this judgment, and... It's a good day for the rich and powerful who can afford expensive PR people to curate a false image. 
Now, there have been some cases of our media reporting things that public figures have said that they thought were private, but here at MediaWatch we don't know of clearly private and personal letters or conversations being turned into news stories without the consent of the parties involved. So, is Meghan Markle putting a marker down for the media over there really relevant for ours here? In his ruling, UK judge Mark Warby referenced a book that he himself co-edited, The Law of Privacy in the Media, published by Oxford University Press, and his co-editor for that book was Professor Nicole Morham from Victoria University of Wellington. Well, I think the most interesting thing about this case is that it was fought at all, to be honest, because there's no, it's been established for hundreds of years that, uh, that, that letters between two people are private, particularly when they're operating in this, kind of, in this kind of context. So to the extent that it sets a precedent, it's one that we already knew. But it's a, it's a useful reminder that, um, that that rule is there, and it does apply well beyond letters, situations arising um, with email or with, um, with intimate photographs that someone's taken, that someone's put on the internet. So in, in, um, in modern contexts, the rule applies um, in all of, to all of those different kinds of forums. Mm, and also kind of an irony that a lot of what was actually in the letter, as reported, was Meghan Markle telling her father, you know, you've got to stop interacting with the tabloids. You're obsessed with tabloid media and you've got to stop. But yeah, I, I mean, I it's actually it's quite... Just... Yeah, it's quite. An, it's an interesting reminder, actually, the, the, the behind these celebrity stories there are real people who are suffering real consequences. And she talks um, at, at length about pleading with him not to read the stuff that's in the media, not to allow himself to be affected in the way that he is. Well, in terms of any impact that it might have here, we don't have privacy law for the media. I mean, the, the media is exempt from the Privacy Act. Um, but when cases do come up, um, often you will see, if you read the judgment, there will be British cases often cited, um, often going back many, many years to establish these principles. So is it something that's likely to be cited if there's to be any kind of challenge in, in New Zealand of, of the way the media conducts itself? Yes, probably. Just to, to, to distinction between what we're talk- the tort that we're talking about here and the Privacy Act. So the Privacy Act is what a lot of people think of when they think of privacy. It's got a media exemption in it. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here is the tort of privacy, which is a, a civil action which a person can bring if somebody breaches their reasonable expectation of privacy in a circumstance where that's highly offensive and the person can't show a defence. So England and New Zealand have very similar actions in that regard. So um, the English action, you have to show a reasonable expectation of privacy and that there's no countervailing um, free speech interests which outweighs that, which is usually worked out by reference to the public interest. And in New Zealand, we do the same thing. So New Zealand law um, tr- often looks to England in any event, in, in any area, to, for guidance. But in this area in particular, we have very few cases. They have a lot. And so it's it's very natural tendency to say, well... Um, if we need to figure out what does the public interest mean in this kind of scenario, I think that a case like this would be something that the courts would look to. Case law. The other option that we have when we look at uh, these matters is to look to American case law because they also have a tort of privacy. The problem with America is that they have very different attitudes to freedom of expression to the ones that we have, and so freedom of expression is, is prioritised. Mm. Yeah, and that's not what we do in New Zealand. For example, in this judgment, which is quite detailed, um, the, the judge starts talking about, for example, the Human Rights Act 1998 obliges the court to interpret English law in conformity with the European Convention on Human Rights and so on. As you're reading all this detail, you think, oh, this surely can't have anything to do with New Zealand. Yeah, and I think that sometimes throws people off the scent a little bit because the, the English courts developed their privacy right in quite a specific way, which involved a whole lot of sort of dancing with the European Court of Human Rights, which is we don't, we don't need to go into, but they... they, they there was a lot of resistance to introducing a privacy tort in the in England, but um, very powerful media were opposed to it. And um, 
So the, the, the feeling was that this was always going to happen through the courts. They introduced a right to respect for private life in their Human Rights Act, and the courts used that as a springboard to introduce the tort in that jurisdiction. We did something different. We looked to the American case law and said, oh, the Americans do it, we can do it too. But in both cases, they were really just springboards to get the action into the law. Once it's in the law, the, the arguments are pretty much the same. Was there a reasonable expectation of privacy? And here we also have to say, was it highly offensive? But that usually follows. And was it outweighed by a free speech interest, a public interest on the other side? Mark Stevens, a British lawyer, um, quite well known. He's been one of the most vocal critics of this judgment. Uh, he's been saying that this effectively outlaws leaks and puts manacles on the media. He even addressed that personally to the judge. You have put manacles on the media. I was surprised for the reason that I gave before, which is that this has been the law for decades, or for, for centuries, that, that, you, that there's... So, that, I mean, literally from the Victorian times, this has been around. So it was, it was a slightly strange comment to that extent. I think what, what's really important to stress here is that in the normal course of things, you can't go around publishing people's, the emails that people write to you. You can't go around publishing intimate photographs that people send to you. you. You can't normally do that in normal circumstances. The really important thing when it comes to leaks is the public interest. Because sometimes we say, look, OK, look, we know that this was your private email account, but if you're going to conduct yourself like that, I'm afraid, the, the privacy interest is not going to help you. There's an overriding public interest in everybody knowing that that's the way in which you were conducting yourself, and that, private, that public interest overrides any privacy interest that you might have had. Because our media don't habitually go, and go around revealing uh, private correspondence of individuals. In fact, I struggle to think of instances where it had happened. Do you think New Zealand editors should be reading this judgment carefully? And, uh, and uh, well, It's a reminder, I think, for? that there are privacy rights. I think it's not part of New Zealand's media culture to, to do these um, exposés on celebrities. I and mean, we've seen it in, in the UK with the phone hacking scandal at mm. the tabloids as well. I mean, that kind of behaviour is just a long way away from any kind of conduct that we get in New Zealand, partly because we just don't have that competitive media culture that goes on in those tabloids and that and that we actually just don't have the celebrities either, do we, in some ways? We don't have an equivalent of... But if you are leaked uh, private correspondence, then it's a reminder, I guess, of the fact that of what, what it is that you have to establish in order to be able to publish that without getting yourself into legal difficulty. And, and that, again, comes back to the, private, the public interest. And the public interest, it means something that the public sort of needs to know in order to conduct itself as a... I don't know, to be a sort of an informed member of society. So right, when people raised ethical concerns about the publication of Dirty Politics by Nikki Hager, for example, because a lot of that uh, based on uh, information without but correspondence by email and files released without the consent of the individuals concerned who ended up in the book. I mean, No, that's right. Their, I mean, that's a good the, example of the application of the public interest defence. So those, those emails were private. I mean, the fact that they were... The, the fact that you're corresponding in a work context doesn't stop something from being private, particularly if it involves um, personal matters. So that, that part of the test, that first part, was pretty easy to establish there. The, what what um, he would, Hager would have been relying on would have been the public interest in that material, which was this is the way that our politicians are conducting themselves and the public needs to know that. And presumably, if you are a journalist in that situation, you need to be very careful about... I mean, I don't imagine that Nicky Hager published every email that he had coming across his desk. So he has to make an assessment about... is does Which he said it in the book. He said, there is material in here which is personal and would be damaging to the reputations of people, but I have decided is not germane to uh, the purpose of this book and and 
not not relevant. And he didn't think that it met the public interest threshold. And I mean, and, and it's not it's not just his call. And when he made that call, he he did so with knowing, presumably, I know that he knew that that there were legal consequences if he got that wrong. And so you you do always have to. And that the media would have amplified it probably exactly. by um, by reporting that stuff uh, and considering the publication to be a green light, uh, then to publish stuff that yeah may not have had um, a solid gold public interest behind it. I mean, the kind of things that the, the public interest would usually apply for would be if, if there's clear evidence of wrongdoing. So cr- serious criminal wrongdoing is the most obvious. In fact, some, I think if you were talking about serious criminal wrongdoing, then you might even get to the point where you could say that's not even private. Mm. But it's um, but then things like um, lack of fitness for public office, that's, that's something that's come out in, in the English case law. Um, you've been peddling a false image. That's something which has come out of the UK. You, you've been busy saying, oh, look, I'm this great family man. I stand for conservative values, and it turns out you're having an affair. Um, in one of the cases, it was um, one of the English captains. He was um, having an affair not just with anyone but with his teammate's girlfriend. That was regarded as being in the public interest to reveal because it interfered with his job as, as England captain, which brought with it certain expectations. So that, that's the kind of situation where the English courts have said there will be a public interest. And I think looking at, um, at dirty politics, I, I think that was, a pretty, that was a pretty safe bet as well, showing about the way that politicians um, and, their, and the people that they worked with were conducting themselves behind behind the scenes. The concern always in these things for, for media is, is there a chilling effect, you know, all the way down the chain to people that might be thinking about releasing something I think there's a public interest in, maybe dissuaded from doing it. Is that something that media here and uh, overseas, of course, could be concerned about? Yes, I think there is always a chilling effect. That's In order to minimise that chilling effect, we need as much certainty as we can possibly get because the, the worst thing, I think, for chilling is if you don't know in advance what's in the public interest and what's not. And I think that there can be some criticism but it's one of the reasons why it's useful to look overseas to say when is there a breach and when isn't there in these kinds of situations. But, yeah, I mean, there's always a risk. It's the same with defamation, isn't it, that you, you, know, you, you know it's true, but can you prove it? Mm. And, um, and we've seen situations where people have been sued for defamation despite the fact that it's true, and it's later come out that it is. So it does... It does but we, we tolerate that in defamation, and, and we do tolerate it also in privacy um, because the, the interest on the other side requires protection. It's just got, to, just got to be careful to make sure that you don't become overprotective. The, the, the public interest is quite broadly read. I mean, especially in New Zealand, there was an ind- a suggestion in a case called Andrews, which involved um, a couple being extricated from a car crash. And in that case, the judge had decided that it wasn't private. But he said even if it had been private, there would have been a public interest in these very intimate disclosures of this particular crash because of the public interest in road safety. So I think if you've got a genuine story which is genuinely in the public interest, it's not just a look at what Meghan Markle wrote to her dad, then I, I think the media are, are pretty safe. But there is one other element to this. which So having looked at it, I mean, it's pretty clear this is a very private letter. It's private correspondence between two people not intended to be uh, made public um, and that reasonable right to privacy or the, the non-disclosure of that, that all seems fairly rock solid and, and I think people would understand it. But then there's also the element of, like, was this already in the public domain because another magazine had reported the existence of this letter or, or correspondence of this nature between between the pair? And the lawyers argued, I guess, unsuccessfully that, look, this had already been discussed. People who are interested in this couple uh, knew that this had happened because I think a magazine called People had reported on it. So, is that something the media would look at? Because if there's something that's of interest, obviously you want the scoop if it's genuinely sensational. However, if you think, you know, that this might be an option, uh, you could somehow, through another avenue, release the material into the public via a blog or anonymously or something and then point to it and say, well, look, it's out there. Um, 
is that something yet to be established whether that's got legal standing or not? Well, the first... The first thing, that the judge made it very clear that there's a difference between a description of a letter or knowing that it exists and actually publishing the content of it. It's because you see the way that it's been expressed, you get exactly what she said. Mm. And one of the thing, one of the arguments that um, the defendants were making, that Markle was making, was I needed to correct this false impression that had been made of me. That she, um, They said it was an olive branch and it wasn't an olive branch. And the judge did accept that, that tiny point of, of his and said, well, look, if you wanted to correct it, first of all, it was published in the People magazine. Why did you go to the Mail on Sunday? And secondly, you could have shown the letter, what, like that one paragraph, one relevant paragraph to a journalist, and then the journalist could have said, I've seen the letter. Otherwise, he said it was, there are lots of ways that you can correct a false, a false um, slur like that, or well, it wasn't a slur so much as a, a, a false impression without publishing the letter wholesale. So this was completely disproportionate. So if you are going to, to, to do that, it has to be proportionate. So the... Um, but then coming back to the question about the public domain, that is actually a tactic that quite that was being that is, is sometimes used. You, um, there was a famous case called um, PJS, which is a claimant that lots of people. The, the the argument was everybody knows who this claimant is. It was about a, a threesome involving an olive oil bath, and um, the the media was saying everybody knows who this person is. I know who it is, but I'm not going to say who it is because the injunction is still in place in England. And the the but the they went to the court and said, look, so they went, the, the media went to the court and said, everybody knows, surely we can now report on it. It's, been, it's all over the internet, otherwise we're at a disadvantage. You know, the, we, we're struggling to make a buck, et cetera, et cetera. How can we compete in this world if it's all over social media and we're not allowed to report it? The, because the, the injunction had already been in place when all of this um, social media stuff came out. And they said, look, we can't say just because somebody's breached our order that you, you can now disregard it. And they kept the order in place. And they were sort of accused of being King Canute, trying to hold back the tide, etc. But the problem is, if you don't do that, you can end up with a situation where you get some random blogger in Iowa put something up on the internet... And then you say, oh, look, it's in the public domain, and then you use that as an excuse to publish it. It is a, it is a difficult issue to resolve, but, gen- but at the moment, when, to the extent that issue has come up, the courts have said if it's not an excuse. So good to know if there's a reasonable expectation of privacy if you're into olive oil bathing. It seems like it's <laughs> right. precedent to see. Yeah, there was, there was no question about the privateness of that, that's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah. in terms of this one, like the, the publisher's wanted to fight it when it looks like they didn't have much of a case. Uh, I guess there's still the option of appealing it. That could still happen. Uh, but if not, I mean, is the likeliest outcome of this a lot of money having to change hands for the uh, in, in terms of either damages or an out-of-court settlement to uh, the Sussexes? Yes, they could appeal. So what, what the status of this decision was, it was actually a strikeout. So um, normally if, to resolve a question like this, you'd have a big trial. And yeah, the judge saying there's no need for a trial yeah, because it's, it's so it's clear so it can't be won. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, so um, they could appeal it. I think they'd be throwing good money after bad, personally. But, uh, they could have a go at that. But what's most likely is that this case will be settled. And um, you know, the damages in recent judgments have been pretty high. I mean, sort of in the, um, I think... Um, Cliff Richard and recently got two hundred thousand pounds. There's been a half million um, settlement in the phone hacking, so they're, they're in the hundreds of thousands. I imagine that for the the Sussexes isn't about money. I think it's probably more about trying to to, to carve out some space where they can live free from media intrusion. And I, I mean, know. the costs of both parties would probably dwarf any any yeah. actual settlement, or if it went to it. Award of damages. Yeah, that's right. I mean, usually the, the costs can run into the millions. And so so it is an expensive enterprise to have fought it and lost. So if, just hypothetically, finally, if 
such a situation arose, there was some private correspondence between two New Zealand individuals where the media thought there was public interest in it, but um, maybe so they're not politicians and it doesn't concern matters of the nation. Uh, so even if it was marginal, do you think they would look at this decision um, and say, actually, we better not? Or um, do you think it wouldn't really cross their radar? If they thought it was worth it, they would do it? I'd hope that it would cross their radar and then they'd make a decision about whether or not it was in the public. And I, mean, I, th- I think the courts will normally follow, if, if a good journalist is thinking hard about it, I imagine that their instincts will be pretty similar to what the what the court would decide is the right or wrong thing. Probably not a bad idea to get legal advice in that situation. But it's, but I do feel, um, I, I don't, I'm not concerned by this decision that our media is suddenly not going to publish, um, publish things which are in the public interest. It's just a good reminder that that public interest defence needs to be uh, in place. Yeah, as Gavin Ellis wrote in his online column in the headline, editors should think again when the letter begins, Dear Daddy. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That was Nicole Morham, Professor of Law at Victoria University of Wellington and an editor of the Oxford University press book, The Law of Privacy and the Media, which is also co-edited by the British judge who recently ruled that the Daily Mail's publication of a private letter by Meghan Markle was against the law.